Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present. This is followed by a question-answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include radical uncertainty, the patient-doctor relationship, learning content versus skill development, the controversy of teaching Huckleberry Finn, and the history of segregation. Buckle up. Our first speaker today is John Kay, who is an Emeritus Fellow at St. John's College at Oxford. He is the recent co-author with Mervyn King of the book entitled Radical Uncertainty, Decision-Making Beyond the Numbers. The book explores the problems with modeling phenomena in a world that has radical uncertainty and non-stationary distributions. This makes predicting the future particularly problematic. Our second speaker is Dr. Andrew Racine, who is Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. Andy will speak about the challenges in a patient-doctor relationship caused by the asymmetry and information between the two parties, one who knows his or her body and the other who knows clinical medicine. Andy will also discuss the science behind some of the latest treatments for COVID and how monoclonal antibodies work as compared to convalescent plasma. And finally, I've asked Andy to evaluate mask wearing after you've had either COVID or been vaccinated. Our third speaker today is Don Hirsch, who is the founder of Core Knowledge Foundation and Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Virginia. Don has written extensively on cultural literacy and the importance of content for reading comprehension and educational development. Don will discuss his new book entitled How to Educate a Citizen, which describes why it is important as a nation that we have a communal content and how it improves testing outcomes for all children. Don will also describe the recent catastrophe in French education when that nation decided to adopt progressive methods in their, educational, uh, in their education. Our fourth speaker is Arnold Weinstein, who is the Richard and Edna Solomon Distinguished Professor of Comparative Literature at Brown University. He has a new book coming out this fall from Princeton University Press entitled Literature's Lives, Reading, Teaching, Knowing. Today, Arnold will discuss why Mark Twain's classic novel Huckleberry Finn may, not be too, may now be too controversial to teach in America's classrooms. I want to find out if this matters and if there's anything we can do about it. Our final speaker today is Peter Tiemann, who is the Gray Professor Emeritus of Economics at MIT. Peter has presented at my book clubs in both Chicago and New York City about his work in the economic history of the Great Depression. Today, Peter will discuss his upcoming book entitled Never Together about the history of segregation. All right, that is the agenda for today's session. I'm now going to hand off the call to our first speaker, John Kay. Please go ahead, John. Thanks, Larry. The Chevalier de Meur was a French aristocrat of the 17th century, and he was an inveterate gambler. But he had a friend with an interest in mathematics called Pierre Fermat. And the Chevalier asked Fermat whether Fermat could help him play his cards more effectively. Now, in turn, Pierre Fermat knew Blaise Pascal, who was a polymath, and an even more distinguished mathematician. And in correspondence between Fermat and Pascal in 1654, the two worked out the basics 
of what we now know as the theory of probability. That theory gave an answer to questions like, if we agree to play five rounds of cards and I win the first two games, what is the probability that I will win the whole series of five? That's what um, these two came up with. There proved to be many applications of the theory of probability. An Englishman called John Gaunt went round the tombstones of London, going to each graveyard, noting the ages at which people died. And he used that information to construct the world's first mortality table. What was the probability that someone would die at any age? In the 19th century, the Irish brewing family of Guinness decided they needed to recruit smart young men to help them run the business. They had a bright Cambridge graduate called William Gossett who applied probability theory to production at the Dublin Brewery. And that was the basis of what would eventually become Six Sigma quality control in the hands of Motorola and Jack Welch in the 20th century. The success of the theory of probability led to many attempts to use it more widely. But there was resistance to that. And exactly a hundred years ago, the American Frank Knight and the Englishman Maynard Keynes each published books emphasizing the distinction between risk, which could be described probabilistically, and uncertainty, which could not. But over the next 50 years, that distinction was elided. In the 19th century, in the 1960s, Milton Friedman, who succeeded Frank Knight as doyen of the Chicago School of Economics, would write that while his predecessor, Frank Knight, had made a distinction between risk and uncertainty, Friedman would not make further use of it because he believed that people could attach probabilities to every conceivable event. It's hard to overestimate the influence of that claim on modern economics, especially financial economics and certain aspects of macroeconomic modeling. But it is a claim which is false. If we're talking about games of chance, about human mortality, about the production of beer in the Guinness Brewery, then we're talking about what are called stationary or ergodic processes, in which what we observe is the result of repeated trials of the same process. But most uncertainty in business and finance and politics is not like that. When the financial crisis broke in 2007, David Vineyard, who was then CFO at Goldman Sachs, told the Financial Times, we've experienced 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. Now, if you understand any of the probability theory that has been developed since Roman Pascal, you know that it's impossible to experience 25 standard deviation events several days in a row. What Vineyard perhaps meant, and certainly should have said, was that the Goldman Sachs models, which assumed that the factors that could, could give rise to loan defaults were constant over time, had completely failed to deal with a changing situation in the first few years of the 21st century. Three years after that, Barack Obama was faced with a decision as to whether or not to order a raid on the Abbottabad compound in which spy satellites had identified a man resembled 
Osama bin Laden. Now, after the intelligence failures in the Iraq war, agencies were told they must express their findings probabilistically. And different estimates of the probability that the man in the compound was bin Laden ranged from 25 to 9, 25% to 95%. And at the end, Obama threw up his, said, his hands and said, look, it's 50-50. It's a flip of the coin. He didn't mean that the probability that it was bin Laden was 0.5. What he meant was that he simply did not know, but had to make a decision anyway. And that's the nature of what we describe as the world of radical uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. We may not even know the kind of things that might happen, but we have to make decisions anyway. So we need to restore that distinction between risk and uncertainty. We experience risk when we fear that our plans will be derailed by events that we have failed to predict, that something will go wrong for us. Uh, risk is bad. Uncertainty, on the other hand, is often to be welcomed. The pleasures of new experiences, new friends, new places. We manage risk by adopting strategies that are robust and resilient to things we cannot predict. And if we do these things, we can embrace and enjoy uncertainty. We don't manage an uncertain future uh, by pretending to have quantitative knowledge of that future, which we do not have and could not have. But far too much of that has happened in the world of politics and finance in the last few decades. John, thank you. Let me start with uh, some questions um, about Barack Obama's decision to go after um, Osama bin Laden. Um, You mentioned that the methods that he used with his military planners and intelligence officers was that they were asked to make probabilities as to certain, or make predictions of, and the likelihood of those predictions being accurate. Um, And you said that uh, the predictions were all over the map between 25 and 95 percent that, in fact, Osama bin Laden was in that fortress. Um, And that you said it was probably correct for Barack Obama to give it little credence and that he decided it was probably just 50-50. It seems to me that you don't particularly like the nature of the question, which is uh, put an estimate on probabilities. What should Barack Obama have asked if he uh, had not asked about the probabilities? Or was it valuable to ask the probabilities, find out that the the distribution was all over the map so that he knew that, that I guess the distribution around those probabilities was quite wide. In other words, it was a large standard deviation around those respective means. Go ahead, John. I think what he should have asked was, tell me a story. Um, and there are various stories which he should have been asking for. Uh, how, how reliable are these spy satellite photographs? What's the basis on which people have made these kind of estimates? If I order the raid... There are a lot of things that can go wrong. What are they? And how will we extricate themselves uh, from them if we can? That's what we mean by saying people naturally don't think in terms of probabilities. They think in terms of stories, narratives. They think in terms of what can go wrong with these kind of narratives. And that, that's the way over thousands of years, essentially, people have found as ways of coping with uncertainty. And the key thing 
is to build a strategy that is robust and resilient to the kind of things you don't know. So there were a lot of these uncertainties about the raid on Pakistan. Equally, if one looks compares the raid of the compound with a failed operation in the desert in uh, 1979, when Carter or the opera ordered the operation to get the, the hostages out, what was wrong with that was that the plan to achieve that was not robust and resilient to the things that actually went wrong when the people were on the ground and, um, in Iran. Um, just going back to the, uh, I'll call it the Iranian fiasco uh, with Jimmy Carter. Um, in uh, Charlie Beckwith's book on Delta Force, he talks about um, that invasion and, or uh, that uh, called hostage frings proposal. And he had made the decision that if a certain number of helicopters were uh, inoperable, that he would cancel the mission. Um, and as I understand it, when Carter, when, when the number of helicopters were destroyed on the ground, uh, Carter may have suggested to continue going on, but Beckwith pretended he couldn't understand the president and ordered um, the operation to be terminated. Um, what, when we think about things sometimes do go wrong and you know maybe the plan wasn't robust and resilient enough but oftentimes bad things happen it, it could have been for example that Osama bin Laden was not in that um, compound and it could have been the fact that enough of the helicopters wouldn't have broken and would have continued on to Tehran whether successful or not I don't know um, but how do we think about just because we only have one draw whether one should be a success and one should be a failure in terms of uh, operational success or uh, good planning and good execution? It, it's a good question. And the, right, the, decision, the decision wasn't right uh, because uh, uh, bin Laden was actually killed, and the decision wasn't wrong because the Iranian hostage mission failed. It's what there's, um, the, there's a professional poker player called Annie Duke who's written a, an interesting book on some of these subjects. And she talks about this about as, as resulting. It's the idea that you decide whether a decision was good or bad by whether it worked well or not. And if you're going to pay, play poker well, you have to understand that you can't do resulting. So it can be that things go wrong and what was uh, with uh, foresight a good decision turns out to be with hindsight a bad decision and we have to learn to cope with these things but the only way we can cope with them is by trying to find strategies that are robust that are robust and resilient so in both the bin laden case and the iranian hostage case you could be pretty confident that some things were going to go wrong uh, it turned out in the in the hostage case that the strategy wasn't robust enough to actually um, had to actually achieve its goals. Uh, I don't know what if we would have been involved in making it robust enough. And probably we can certainly criticize people for not having made it robust in that kind of way. Equally, in the Obama case, a lot of things might have gone wrong, but didn't. And in that case, we might very well have, a, we'd certainly have a different view of the raid 
we might have a very different view of Obama as president. As president. Uh, we can't uh, simply judge decisions by looking with hindsight as to whether they worked out or whether they didn't work out. But if one goes back to something like the financial crisis, we can have a pretty good idea as to whether people in the financial sector have a good track record of, on balance, getting things right or too frequently getting things wrong. And that's very different. It's relying on judgment and experience at the expense of predictive modeling. Last week on What Happens Next, we discussed uh, GameStop and the crazy market behavior that existed in that stock over the last few weeks. Um, a number of market makers uh, had sold options uh, at relatively low implied volatilities and then lost a fortune when, in fact, the realized volatility over the last few weeks it was astronomical. Um, what did, did those traders make a, a, a fundamental mistake in their misunderstanding of the non-stationary aspects of, of volatility? Or was it just a bad draw where there was something completely out of the ordinary that they um, either could have recognized, should have recognized, or something that look, it's, just, it's such a, a remote draw, you know, that these are the times when you lose the money. How do you think about um, being a market maker and trying to figure out what the future will hold uh, as it relates to options or something else? I think it was both these things that actually part of the problem was believing that you could derive estimates of current volatility from observation of volatility in the, in, in the past. And the market conditions we've seen in the last year or two are ones where it's very clear that that, uh, that assumption is false. There's also an element of just making a bad draw. If you're going to have short positions, sometimes something is going wrong. It's going to go wrong. But also, if you're taking out large short positions, you need robustness and resilience means you need to have some kind of exit strategy. And one of the things I think we've learned about short selling is it's quite difficult to have robust and resilient exit strategies when something starts to go wrong for you. And I think we'll learn more about it in a few months when everyone can take a cooler view on it. Uh, but I think... Uh, short sellers will have to do a lot more thinking about effective exit strategies than they've clearly done in the past. I've been looking back actually on Europe's biggest example of that kind of thing, which was a few years ago when there was a similar short squeeze in Volkswagen. Oh, yeah. And for a time, Volkswagen was actually the most valuable company in the world as uh, shorts were squeezed out. I think every, anyone who's ever shorted markets knows that it's a pretty, you need pretty strong nerves to stay in these positions. In the example you gave with um, the card playing, um, what you have is a deck of cards that is a stationary uh, distribution. But in, in warfare, um, that isn't the case. You've got two parties uh, without any rules going you know at it full going full at it, but you still have to make a decision, just like Barack Obama had to make a decision and when you look at some of the great uh, military decisions where um, the other side can 
undermine it. Uh, take D-Day, for example. How do you think about um, that sort of decision in the context of uh, uncertainty with regards to, let's say, weather, technology, and the response of the Germans? Right. So you have a whole variety of unknowns in that. And there are a whole variety of devices which were put in place to try and make D-Day work. One of the great achievements was the, the uh, selling of uh, misinformation to the Germans so that they were not sure, even at the last minute, with a huge build-up build up of, of forces on the English coast, where the landing was actually going to be. You needed, and uh, I certainly don't know very much about them and not very much maybe known about them, but there had to be exit strategies. What was Eisenhower going to do if things may, were, turned out to be much worse than uh, the central plan anticipated? And also, of course, the weather was a big deal. And we know that um, uh, the planners put a lot of reliance on weather forecasting which is one of these things that has a relatively stationary process, which means we can do it quite well. And they adjusted the timing of the D-Day landings uh, to give them the best chance of making these successful. It's interesting because weather forecasting is a, is a good example of a, a stationary process where we can make predictions, although um, uh, we have a lot of questions about what these predictions are. I've asked myself the question, indeed, we spend a little time on this in the book, on the question of when your, the, the app on your phone tells you there's a 40% chance of rain tomorrow, what does that actually mean? And what is that number actually based on? And we lost a bit of confidence in it all by going through these inquiries. Uh, let me try um, a, a more basic question. You referenced Frank Knight's distinction between risk and uncertainty. Um, I just wanted you to maybe articulate what that difference was for the benefit of the audience who hasn't read the book. Yeah, for, for Frank Knight, it was the difference. Risk was what you could describe probabilistically. Uncertainty was what you could not describe with probabilities. And Keynes essentially made the same distinction in his book in the same year. Uh, we actually make that distinction rather differently. Uh, and we describe resolvable uncertainty as uncertainty that you can describe probabilistically and radical uncertainty as uncertainty which you can't. What we mean by radical uncertainty is uncertainty is not knowing, mostly it's not knowing what is going to happen although it can also be not knowing what is happening. As in the Obama case, you don't know whether the man in the compound is Bin Laden or not. So uncertainty comes from imperfect information. And you can resolve that in one or two ways. Uh, one is you can go out and get more information. The other is you can say there's a stationary distribution and we can therefore construct a probability distribution. Radical uncertainty is where you can't do either of these things, which is pretty often. And as we've kept emphasizing this conversation, even where there's radical uncertainty, 
you typically do actually have to make decisions. You know, um, Dodd-Frank requires that banks um, prepare for, I'll call it, catastrophic events, uh, how they're going to, what they're going to do. Um, and somehow this is going to give reassurance to the regulators as to the, the plans uh, of a living will for these institutions. When you hear about this approach to minimizing the damage of another financial crisis, do you think this is a wise idea? Do you give it any credence? Or does it give another false sense of hope that this is uh, something that will add value uh, in the process? I give it some credence. Since the 2008 crisis, we've raised minimum capital requirements quite a bit. And we've also required people to go into in these stress tests and to construct the living wills you describe. But we haven't, to be honest, changed very much. And uh, capital requirements are higher than they used to be, but they're not so much higher. And one of the things we've learned looking back on the 2008 crisis was how much capital they had was almost useless as a predictor of what, um, how severe the financial crisis would, would, would be. Uh, we mentioned earlier in the call, actually, Northern Rock, which was literally announced itself to the, be the best capitalized bank in Britain, and according to the regulatory rules, was, and it announced that essentially six months before it went bust. That being and we're said, still using think... models not very different. That said, when you have such a complicated world, um, if someone said to me, how, what design would you have to improve um, the efficacy of the banking system, I would just simplify the problem just saying, put more capital in, and then you can uh, not rely so much on these, I'll call it bogus models to rely on, those same models that you poke fun at David Veneer for. Um. Yep, that's right. Right. What robustness and resilience, and we emphasize again and again robustness and resilience. And in complex engineering systems, robustness and resilience typically means modularity and redundancy. Modularity means you design systems such that if parts of it fail, that doesn't mean the system as a whole fails. Redundancy means you don't build things to the tolerances you think you might be able to get away with. You build things uh, to accommodate a storm worse than has ever been experienced, and so on. And that's really important because in the financial system up to the financial crisis, both redundancy, um, but both modularity and redundancy were regarded as measures of inefficiency. If banks had more capital than the regulatory requirements obliged them to have, we called that surplus capital. Modularity meant siloing different activities into ideally different firms or certainly different parts of firms. So that if the investment banking part of a if investment bank, aspects of investment banking failed, that didn't jeopardize retail banking. Uh, but 
one of the main things about the deregulation of the 70s and 80s was that it, it removed these silos and at the same time uh, having more capital than re the regulation demanded was regarded as surplus capital and you were inefficient unless you distributed it back to shareholders. Now that's been a lesson for many other firms in the recent pandemic that again they'd reduced they'd uh, reduced modularity and built just-in-time supply chains and that meant they didn't necessarily have the robustness and resilience to cope well with the crisis. Donald Rumsfeld in a famous speech um, discussed um, the unknown unknowns and for you that is a key aspect of uncertainty. So not only is the, um, it a non-stationary, but we don't even know what we're talking about. Um, what, what, would you, what is your comment or the insight that Rumsfeld has, and how should policymakers, or for that matter, investors, think about the unknown unknowns as it relates to their evaluation of events? It's interesting, in Rumsfeld terms, unknown unknowns are the things we don't know, we don't know. And we were rather interested to trace the history of, uh, of that remark. As it turns out, Rumsfeld got it from Boeing. And Boeing engineers talked about unkunks, by which they meant unknown unknowns. And that happened in the 1950s when the reason America took over from Britain in leadership in civil jet aviation, because the first jet airliners that flew were actually British uh, planes. Uh, but there were two disastrous crashes of these British planes in 1952 and 1953. And it took people a long time to work out what the source of the problem was. And it was paradoxically simple. It was that you couldn't have square windows in planes because stresses built up round uh, the, the corners of the square, which actually produced metal fatigue in the aircraft frame. And that's why, if you look, all planes nowadays have oval windows rather than square windows. But this was the unknown unknowns. And Boeing engineers from then on knew they had to keep looking for unknown unknowns, trying to build planes that were robust and resilient enough to cope with things they couldn't predict. I think we might infer that Boeing perhaps forgot that lesson in the last decade, and that's evident in the present problem as they have in 77 Max. Uh, or does that mean that um, you can never get around the unknown unknowns, no matter how much estimates you make? Um, John, we're gonna. Uh, John, thank you very much. We're gonna move on to our our next speaker. I appreciate uh, your insights. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Andrew Racine. He is a professor of clinical pediatrics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He will be discussing COVID and the patient-doctor relationship. Andy, please go ahead. Thank you, Larry. Uh, I'm going to speak about three elements of the current COVID-19 situation. First, the inherent uncertainty in the practice of clinical medicine. 
Second, how medicine confronts this uncertainty. And then third, what those efforts have taught us during this pandemic. The practice of medicine is an exercise in decision-making in the face of uncertainty, just like investment strategies for financial managers. Unlike investors, however, where astute practitioners may profitably exploit information asymmetries, the information asymmetries facing physicians universally diminish the efficiency of clinical decision-making and invariably provoke anxiety in the process. Physicians come to clinical encounters with knowledge about the epidemiology and the pathophysiology of various ailments, information that is usually unavailable to the patient. Conversely, patients possess intimate understanding of their own condition, the duration of their symptoms, the effect on their functioning, and their appetite for risk regarding potential interventions. To reach the optimal clinical decision, the parties attempt to bridge these asymmetries through iterative exchanges of information until they arrive at a mutually agreeable plan. Novelty, from any source, makes this process more challenging. What we're witnessing now, in real time, is how this plays out in the context of a never-before-seen infection that has disseminated globally in a matter of months. Because COVID-19 is a brand new disease, there's heightened uncertainty regarding clinical decision-making about it. How has the medical profession addressed this? Principally in four ways. One, the application of standard scientific laboratory techniques that have enabled us to rapidly sequence the viral genome and understand its replication dynamics. Two, large-scale controlled experiments involving thousands of patients that have shown us, for example, that the two new mRNA vaccines prevent COVID-19 infection in about 95% of recipients. Three, public health observations on the effectiveness of non-pharmacologic interventions, such as mask wearing and social distancing. And four, our oldest approach, that of clinical practice itself. Iterating changes in treatment protocols over time, literally practicing medicine, has decreased mortality rates among hospitalized patients at Montefiore to the point where they are now at about a third of what they were in the spring. Which brings me to my third point. What have we learned? Well, We've learned that the COVID-19 infection is caused by an RNA virus that is really a very simple construct. It consists of a core RNA molecule of about 30,000 base pairs, which is just a set of genetic instructions about how to replicate a copy of the instructions and make an envelope to contain and transport it. That envelope is merely a shell of fat, festooned with a variety of proteins, including the spike protein, which functions as a kind of key specifically designed to fit into a lock known as the ACE2 receptor sitting on the surface of epithelial cells in a variety of human tissues, most notably those in the respiratory tract. When the spike protein key attaches to the ACE receptor lock, it opens a hole in the cell membrane, ushering the virus into the cell. Now the virus is in an environment where its RNA instructions can be read by the cell's own machinery to make more viruses. With this knowledge in hand, all known treatment strategies for COVID-19 are designed to do one of three things. Prevent the virus from reaching its target, interfere with the cellular machinery that helps the virus replicate, 
or moderate the body's own immune response to the infection. Non-pharmacologic interventions, mask wearing, social distancing, hand hygiene, when practiced consistently, limit transmission of the virus, even among non-symptomatic carriers who are quite capable of unknowingly spreading the infection. These measures are cheap, readily available to all, and effective. Monoclonal antibodies and convalescent plasma both work over, off of a similar principle. They target a specific part of the spike protein, known as the receptor binding domain, that sits at the tip of the spike protein key, where it inserts into the ACE2 receptor lock. If an antibody can get between the key and the lock, it can prevent attachment and prevent viral entry into the cell. But this only works well at a point early enough in the infection before most virus particles gained entry into the host cells, nor is it particularly useful to those who are destined to limit the infection on their own. We've also learned to design vaccines which, much like the virus itself, recruit the body's own cells into making, in the case of vaccines, only the critical spike protein so the body's immune system can recognize it and be prepared with antibodies and prime T cells should the actual virus appear. And we've learned that the virus changes over time. The initial Wuhan strain mutated fairly early with a modification to the spike protein that rendered the virus more transmissible and rapidly became the dominant strain throughout the world. More recently, three new variants, one from the UK, one from South Africa, and one from Brazil, have recently been identified in the US. Both mRNA vaccines, as well as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, protect against severe disease or hospitalization from any of these new strains. This is probably because they all produce a robust neutralizing antibody response and a very strong T cell response that appear to protect against severe disease, even with these new mutations. Finally, mRNA vaccine technology makes it much easier to tweak the vaccine design in order to meet the challenge of any newly emerging variants as they get identified. In the end, what we've learned in particular is that uncertainty and information asymmetries, much like the virus itself, can provoke in the scientific and public health communities a robust defensive response that results in substantial resilience over time. Great, thank you, Andy. Um, I'm gonna go straight to question and answer. Uh, and John Kay, I'd love you to, if you could think of questions relating to this uncertainty asymmetry, I think it uh, deals well with your, uh, your talk as well. So let me start out with a, a question, Andy, about the most, um, the basic question. Uh, you become aware that you have um, COVID. Your test is positive. You call your internist and you inform them that you tested positive and that you're not feeling well. Uh, you give your condition. Um, and if you could describe a little bit about um, what the role of the physician is uh, to, to gather information, to, to plan an action plan, um, what, what is it the physician needs to know to advise you, and what should you be telling your physician in case he doesn't ask the right questions? Right. That's a terrific, terrific question, Larry, and I'm, I'm particularly gratified to be able to follow John in this set of discussions because... Um, this may get, and I'd be interested in his comments on this, this may get at the issue of sort of probabilistic thinking versus 
uncertainty with respect to any given individual patient. So what the physician does is he or she um, attempts to bring to bear what they know about the epidemiology of this condition and about the pathophysiology of it and to elicit certain kinds of information, clues from the specific patient that is in their office about what those risk factors might be, right? So you go back to essentially the basic history and physical examination that we do, which is what kinds of previous conditions have you experienced in your life in terms of things that we know put you at increased risk for bad outcomes with this infection? What medications might you be taking or allergies that you've had? What other kinds of infections have you been subject to in the past? And essentially, what kinds of behaviors are you involved in that may also um, influence your, the likelihood of you um, experiencing a bad outcome? What's your age? Um, where do you live and what kind of work do you do? These kinds of things also help try to give the physician some idea of, let's say, among other things, the volume of virus to which this person may or may not have been exposed. And put all of that together in a fairly intuitive model, then the physician will come up with certain kinds of recommendations. Knowing that the vast majority of people who get this, who get this uh, infection, particularly if they are less than 65 years of age, actually do quite fine on their own without any intervention at all. They may get sick, I mean, you know, mildly sick over a period of a few days, but they don't get severely ill. Once you get beyond 65 years of age, and certainly 75 and 80 years of age, then the probabilities change quite dramatically, and then you have to really be thinking about the kinds of interventions. So what the physician might say, depending upon what they've heard, is stay home, take Tylenol, stay away from people, keep a mask on, drink plenty of fluids, get some rest, and let's check back in in a day or so. And that's an important thing, because the best predictor of how someone is going to do with this infection is how they are currently doing with the infection. And to the extent that their status changes, that's a signal to the person who is responsible for their care that perhaps the response now needs to change. And so follow-up in these kinds of instances is extremely important because for some of the interventions, like we mentioned, monoclonal antibodies are a good example, there is a window during which a trigger needs to be pulled because if you don't do it, beyond a certain point, it's no longer effective. As we were talking about, once you get to the point where someone has a huge amount of virus already in their cells, there's no point in giving them antibodies to try and impede that from happening. It's already happened. And now you're left with trying to either interfere with viral replication for the use of something like remdesivir or other antivirals, or trying to dampen down the inevitable immune response of the body using steroids. And that's why different interventions for this infection take place at different points of time in any given individual's experience with the, with the disease. One of the things you mentioned was your appetite for risk. So let's imagine you're under the age of 65, you're in your mid-50s, you come down to it and you've, you've got a bad case, but you know you have somewhere between three to five days to make this decision on the monoclonal antibodies. Um, if you don't have pre-existing conditions, um, somehow the medical system is, is somehow opposed to you getting these um, monoclonal antibodies. I don't know if there's a true sense of scarcity or a, a one-time 
a false sense of, of that there wasn't enough of this monoclonal antibodies around. But let's imagine that you were very risk averse. You, you just don't want to die or be hospitalized. Um, should you encourage your physician to get the monoclonal antibodies? And if your physician is sort of resistant, uh, what, what other options do you have? What happens if sure. you are, what if your risk tolerance is different than your physicians? You talk about this like we're a team, but sometimes the team isn't on the same page. Well, this actually gets to the issue of professionalism in the practice of medicine. The physician-patient relationship is a principal-agent relationship. And the physician, if he or she is acting according to the precepts of what medicine is supposed to be like, should be acting as an agent for that principle, regardless, actually, for example, of issues of scarcity or not. The idea that physicians are to take into account kind of social groups goes out the window once you cross the threshold of the exam room because there you are, you are obliged, in a sense, professionally obliged, to be an advocate for the person sitting across from you and to do whatever you can to maximize that person's um, outcomes. And as you point out, that will change depending upon the information you receive from the patient about their own tolerance for risk and uncertainty. And there are certain people, for example, and let's get away from COVID for a moment. Let's use something else that some people in the uh, audience may be some, somewhat familiar with. Um, people who have an ele elevated num um, sort of number in their prostate-specific antigen, right? This is a sort of a signal, if you will, of potential problems with prostate cancer. And there's been a lot of talk about what's the most efficacious approach to that. Some people will advocate what's called watchful waiting. So the PSA goes up a little bit, you sit and you wait and you see what it means. Other people say, no, 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 I want a biopsy and I want one right now. Or other people will say, you know, they'll, they'll do something in between, they'll wait and then they'll get a biopsy. There is no right answer for any of this. It really depends on what the, the, what the patient feels comfortable with and what the physician knows about the likely outcomes. And that may change. That may change over time, which is, gets back to this issue of how it is that the physician-patient relationship is managed. Because the astute clinician understands that people will change their minds about things, and there's nothing wrong with that. That kind of inconsistency is fine. And I, I'm going to give you one other thing, because this is something that actually may also speak directly to what John was talking about before. We know through a series of neurologic studies, quite frankly, that decisions that are made under conditions of risk are made using a different part of our brain than the prefrontal cortex that's responsible for calculations. And there's a very famous experiment that's been done that some people on the phone might, might know about. And I'll, I'll play it with you for a moment. So I have a, a jar that has 90 balls in it. 30 of them are blue. 60 of them are either red or yellow. I don't tell you what that ratio is. And I propose to you the following. I put my hand in the jar and I pull out a blue ball, you get $100. Or I put my hand in the jar and I pull out a yellow ball and you get $100. Which bet do you want? The vast majority of people, if you ask them one question, will say, I want the first bet. I know there are 30 blue balls there. I don't know how many yellow balls there are. I want the first bet. You say, fine. Let me give you another example now. I put my hand in the jar, and I pull out either a blue or a red ball. You get $100. Do 
or I put my hand in the jar and I pull out either a red or a yellow ball, you get $100. Which bet do you want? Most people will choose the second because they know there are 60 red and yellow balls. But think about that for a second. Because what they've said in their first bet is they believe that there are less than 30 yellow balls in the jar because they prefer betting on the blue ball jar. But if there are less than 30 yellow balls in the jar, by definition, there have to be more than 30 red balls because yellow and red together make 60. And yet in the second bet, when they're asked about that, they prefer the red and yellow bet as opposed to the blue and red bet, which would be more consistent with their first bet. So they do this inconsistently. Why is that? Well, the reason is that if you actually hook these people up to a functional MRI machine, you find that the area of their brain that lights up when they're being asked to make these decisions is not the area of their brain that makes calculations. It's much deeper structures, the amygdala, the hippocampus, very primitive areas of the brain that are responsible for fight and flight reflexes. When we are asked to make decisions on the basis of uncertainty or risk in that way, I don't, and I will leave it to John to distinguish these two, we don't ordinarily use our brains to calculate that. And this gets back to what I was saying before. So how do we overcome that? The way we overcome that is we do structured experiments that essentially reimpose the prefrontal cortex part of our brains, reimpose the activity of that part of our brains to bring to bear on the decision making. We do experiments with people, we do observational experiments, we do experiments in the lab, all of which are designed to get us away from our amygdalas and our hippocampus. Having said all of that, once you get into the exam room and you're having a conversation between a physician and a patient, you're left with decisions that oftentimes are not based on calculations on probabilities, but are based on fear, anxiety, the things that people normally confront when they feel vulnerable. And that has to be taken into consideration. What the physician can do is they can bring to bear the probabilistic information that's available, but that may not be the governing thing that makes the decision at the end of the day. And that has to be respected. John Kay, how do you think about risk and uncertainty in the context of some of the things Andy's been talking about, about evaluating um, treatments and behavior in, in time of COVID? John, you may be on mute or, or maybe you've dropped off. All right, I'm going to go back to another question for Andy in the meantime. Um, Andy, I had um, some abdominal pain 15 years ago, and I went to my doctor and he ordered a CAT scan, and I had, uh, they were checking to see if I had appendicitis. And it happened to be that Renee Yap was the radiologist on call, and she had gone to my high school and had been a friend of mine in college. And so she took me in the back room to look at my CAT scan results. And the first thing she said to me is, my God, do you not eat any vegetables at all? And then the second thing she said was, uh, <laughs> she said, it looks like your appendix is inflamed, but I don't know. I don't think we need to do anything. I said, thank God, and I went home. The next Monday afternoon, she called me, 
and she said that every Monday morning in the radiology department at Northwestern University, they have a conference to discuss interesting cases. And she said, Larry, I put your appendix up on the wall, and I asked for a vote whether or not it should be removed. And at the end of the vote, it was five to five. Five said it should stay in, and five radiologists said it needed to go. I said, good God, what should I do? <laughs> she said, it's a push. Anything you want. Half the radiologists would, would agree with you, whatever decision you want. All right. How should a patient analyze that information when they hear something like that? Yeah, that's, yeah. Look, um, it's interesting the way you bring that up because oftentimes the way that gets resolved in the context of the doctor-patient relationship is so the doctor presents what they know, the probabilities, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and this happens to all of us who practice medicine, and it's happened to me once or twice. The patient says, well, if this were you, and in my case, because I'm a pediatrician, if this were your child, what would you do? Now, it's a curious question, quite frankly. I mean, the implication is somehow that the advice that I would give a patient is different than what I myself would think would be the best thing, which is not, not the case. But what it does is it sort of speaks to what patients are looking for in this relationship. They're looking for reassurance that they are making the right decision. And again, this gets back to some of the things that John was talking about. Whether or not your appendix was taken out, no one at the time the decision was going to be made could predict with any certainty as to what would or would not happen. Again, this gets back to what I was talking about before, though, because clinical medicine in that sense is forgiving so long as you don't lose sight of the ball, so long as you don't take your eye off what's happening. Anybody could look at you and say, okay, right now at this moment on Thursday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we could go either way. Let's check back at 8 o'clock tonight. See how you're feeling. See what your appetite's like. See if you have any fever. See if your abdominal pain has changed. These are the things that make the decisions more accurate over time because, quite frankly, pathophysiology is not, <laughs> not rocket science. The body does what it does in predictable ways. And if you've seen enough patients over enough encounters, you begin to anticipate those things. So while it seems somewhat arbitrary, maybe, and mysterious from the, from the patient's standpoint, from the provider's standpoint, as long as you know you have access to that person over a time frame that you can, that you can monitor, you can feel more confident over time that you're not going to make a wrong decision, if you will, or miss something with regard to the clinical evaluation and the, um, the condition you're confronting. Now, does it happen that you're thinking that it's X and it turns out to be Y because Y is what you hadn't considered? Yes, that does happen. Um, sometimes you bring in other people, other sets of eyes, particularly when things don't go according to the way you might predict. But a lot of it really has to do with sort of continuing to accrue information. It's sort of like, it's like, it's like Bayesian probability theory. You make a decision on the basis of your priors, and then you add new elements of information over time, and that changes your, your decision about what the probable nature of something that's going to happen is. You just have to continue to do that. Okay. 
Andy, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to go on to our next topic, uh, which is uh, the roles of knowledge or core knowledge in the educational process. Uh, our first speaker is Don Hirsch. Uh, Don is a founder of Core Knowledge Foundation and Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Virginia, and he's written a recent book called How to Educate a Citizen. Don, can you please go ahead? Yes, thank you. Uh, it's an interesting segue because you've been talking about uncertainty and risk, and in the, in the area I'm going to talk about, there is very little uncertainty in the scientific world, but there's a lot of debate and political activity which prevents that science from being applied. Anyway, let me give you the background to all of that. Uh, I, in the 60s and 70s, that's how old I am, I started uh, reading cognitive psychology, though I was already a professor of English, and uh, especially psycholinguistics, because I had uh, just done a book on interpretation, and I ran across a remarkable discovery in psycholinguistics. I think it was the most important discovery about language since the invention of alphabetic writing. It was the discovery of what you could call the communicative store. Uh, that's what cultural literacy is. In my six minutes, I'll try to unpack that phrase, communicative store. Everybody has long known that language carries implications uh, beyond its explicit words. The very term implication means something folded in, hidden from view, plea, uh, the PLI element uh, means a folded in layer as in plywood, for example. There's nothing new there. Implication is old hat. What was new was the insight that all human languages had evolved to be deeply ambiguous and therefore enormously efficient. With a few thousand words, you can pretty much say anything. That's life-preserving for tribal actions when a human group wants to kill and eat a, bi a, a big mastodon or another human tribe. And, and it's also true in the modern world. Suppose I give a brief command like, Polly put the kettle on, we'll all have tea. It takes about four seconds to say, and that's enormously efficient because Polly will need a full half hour to carry out the command. If I had to be explicit in the command, it would take quite a long time. So there's every evolutionary reason for human tribes to evolve a language, a communicative vehicle that is both efficient and precise. And those who survive are the ones who who do evolve uh, that combination, efficiency and precision of communication. But to be both proficient, uh, efficient, and precise, the speaker and the listener have to share a lot of unspoken lore that fills in the blanks. So what is implicit in the language isn't, in fact, 
hold it in. It isn't there at all. It isn't in the language. It has to be put in there by the listener or the reader. The implications in the words are not a layer in the folds of language, but in the folds of the human neocortex. And that's where language and culture reside. Ever since 2005, we've learned that the neocortex is a blank slate at birth. This is, it, it, John Locke was right. It's a terribly important uh, discovery. Uh, it has huge implications, for example, for the concept of ethnicity. And that's another topic. But note, for the command, let's all have tea to be carried out. Polly has to know, has to have learned quite a lot. Only because she knew the implicit details could she quickly run off and get to work so the tea would be ready before the guests came. So note this, for effective communication to turn the human tribe into an intelligent and efficient organism, there's a key feature in the evolutionary scheme, namely the big, hard-to-birth human brain. It not only has to learn the basic language system, some 60 or 70,000 words, it has to learn a lot of tribal lore that makes those words work precisely in a lot of specific life and death circumstances. That takes a huge memory capacity. In every tribe, it takes a lot of schooling of the young. Psycholinguistics uses two key terms that every concerned citizen in a democracy should know. Background knowledge and speech community. The members of a speech community are people who share the background knowledge that can disambiguate and amplify each other's utterances. Notice uh, the, there's a plea in amplify too to spread out what, what is in there. Speech community and background knowledge. They specify the key aims of early education really since the beginning of humanity. A speech community is a group that irrespective of skin color shares the background knowledge which transforms the group into a speech community. That was the conclusion reached by the great scholar of nationalism, Karl Deutsch. A nation is a speech community, period. That was his definition. He has fascinating comments, for example, about Switzerland in that regard. They have four languages in Switzerland, but they're still a single speech community. It, it's the chief nation sustaining duty of a nation's schools to transform its young people into being members of the national speech community. It has to convey the shared background knowledge, the communicative store, the cultural literacy that's shared in the nation. In the US, we all have tea is a fancy afternoon affair. In working class Britain, it's the early evening meal. That's the sort of subtlety that makes British speech, the British speech community, subtly different from, the, from our own. 
So despite our current determination to educate people of color effectively, the reading scores of young blacks in the United States has remained stagnant. It has even declined recently. That's because our educational theories, as you suggested in your intro, are focused on skill rather than content. The idea that there's such a thing as a general reading skill or a general communicative skill. That's wrong, as we now know from psycholinguistic work. It's communicative still depends on the communicative store that people have so that they can disambiguate and amplify language communications. The cultural literacy effort is an attempt to make explicit the background knowledge possessed by the speech community and that, that happens to speak and write and print Americanese and that every child has an equal, the schools need to ensure that every child has equal access to that shared knowledge. So my six minute conclusion is very straightforward. To be a successful unified nation with highly competent self-governing citizens, we need to revolutionize our K-8 education so that everybody can communicate effectively with everybody else in the nation. In the common school of the 19th century, up to about 1930, in fact, uh, that's in effect what we had for white students. Uh, and we were at the top of reading scores internationally. The black culture that people now want to include is easily accommodated if we focus on content. If we, but we have to rationalize and universalize our early curriculum so that we begin to score better. For example, in the international rankings, American students now rank in the PISA tests of international assessments. We're at number 25 among the nations now. We can improve uh, the equity and the quality of uh, these scores and these uh, equity in, in our schooling by enabling every child with the silent communicative score store that every person informed enough to be listening, I should think, to this podcast undoubtedly possesses. But we'll have to change our policy considerably. That's the end. Thank you, John. Uh, we're going to hold off questions for Don because we're putting him with a, in a panel with Arnold Weinstein. Arnold is a comparative literature professor at Brown, and he'll be discussing Huckleberry Finn. Go ahead, Arnold. Thank you. Um, Huckleberry Finn, particularly from the angle of controversy, uh, has always been controversial from the get-go. Uh, when it was published in the 1880s, it was infamously rejected, turned down at the Concord Public Library. And of course, Concord in the American mind, so you think of the home of American transcendentalism, Emerson, Thoreau, was turned down there. And the reason they turned it down uh, is that they thought the book was coarse, uh, and they called its language, I quote, the veriest trash. But there was no mention at all of the N-word. Uh, it's been said that, that Twain was delighted with this uh, bad press, and he thought it would sell some more copies. Uh, 
throughout my whole career, the book has been controversial. Uh, teachers and administrators and students uh, have been stung by its treatment of race. Uh, Jim has been thought one-dimensional. And from a kind of literary point of view, equally bad news, the entire last third of the novel is thought in many quarters to be botched. Uh, it turns into a carnival of disguises and tricks and fun and games as if Tom Sawyer had hijacked the book so that the plot, the moral plot of freeing Jim gets lost sight of uh, and loses authority. And one reason that that's worth bearing in mind is that what goes around comes around because today the book is in even more trouble and again because of language. Uh, and this time, of course, it's the N-word. It's all over the book. And I've had students, some of my best students have told me, I can't quote this word, I'm not allowed to, even when teaching it. And my own fear is that once we start sanitizing books, we're not all that far away from burning them. But one reason this matters to me uh, is why the language is what it is in this book and whether or not it should be controversial, which it really leads me to how Twain uses Huck and what needs to be borne in mind, and not everybody sort of, I think, realizes this when you read the book, you have to really think hard about it, is that even though Twain published the book uh, finally in the 1880s, he spent a lot of time writing it, uh, that the time frame within the novel is in the 1840s. And that matters because in the 1840s, there's been no civil war, there's no Abraham Lincoln, there's no Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery, in some essential sense, has not yet been adjudicated. The second piece is that Twain's stroke of genius is to entrust the story to Huck Finn, who was a kid, and further, a kid from the wrong side of the tracks, uh, unschooled, what it, in the 50s or 60s we would have called a dropout, with no cultural capital, which is to say he's not a preacher, he's not an abolitionist, he's not a university student, he's not a progressive. And for all these reasons, I'd like to say that I, I think we need to read this book and to see that Huck Finn is barometric. He's, in some sense, exemplary of his moment. In other words, he is serenely racist, as are many of the other characters in the novel. Aunt Polly, the widow Douglas, Miss Watson, the stuff that's learned in Sunday school, the very air you breathe. There's a line I've always liked, which is not underlined at all in the book, uh, where Huck, improvising as he always does, uh, is asked why he was late uh, by his Aunt Sally, and he explains that there had been an accident on the steamboat I quote, we blowed out a cinder head. Her answer, good gracious, anybody hurt? He says, no, killed the N-word. She answers, well, it's lucky because sometimes people do get hurt. So these are the ways in which Twain, I believe, is giving us uh, the words of the tribe, as it were, uh, about the what I call serenely racist views of that moment in culture uh, in Missouri and places like that. What Twain has I don't know how he came to this, because it's so different from Tom Sawyer and other books of his. He came to the view that if you put this young boy on a raft in the Mississippi with an older man, you know, escaped black slave named Jim, you get magic. And, of course, it's well known in Twain criticism and people who love the book that it's on the raft, and only on the raft, that Huck comes to realize that Jim is real, that he's a human being just like he, Huck, is. Another line that's worth quoting is that I do believe he cared just as much for his people as white folks does for theirs. It don't seem natural, but I reckon it's so. And it's amazing to me that 
many cultural theorists would have picked up on that today, that word natural, which one of the lessons of our time, of many times, is that natural, once you start to examine it, means cultural and means a whole set of assumptions that are anything but natural. So the book offers us a huck who is an orphan who's, never, who's been cared for but never been loved, which, of course, is what he experiences over and over on the raft. And the pinnacle moment of the novel is when Huck, who is totally beset by a bad conscience uh, because he's aiding an escaped slave, he writes to Miss Watson, the owner, uh, that he knows where Jim is. And then he finds, to his amazement, that he cannot send the letter, and it closes with lines that people who know the book love. Quote, all right, then, I'll go to hell and tore it up. So this view of the novel, what I'm trying to convey is that it's filled with rich things that I think are the kind of testimony of literature, uh, testimony also to Twain's own brilliance. Uh, the one question, the book is crawling with fathers. We've got you know sort of regulatory care and we've got pap. But most readers sense that in any poetic or spiritual sense, uh, that the real father that, that uh, Huck has is Jim. That would be the love that dare not speak its name if, you know, at, at that moment. It couldn't have been sort of rationally understood that way. And yet it's what the moral truth of the book is. And moral is the word I want to focus on, that Huck's moral education uh, is among the most beautiful things, I believe, in, in American literature. Also necessary, how much do we ever know about moral education with regard either to ourselves or others when we are altered, when we grow, when something changes in us? So that's the way I'd close this uh, presentation. The N-word, I heard it every day, as, as I think Don Hirsch did in Memphis, where I grew up, as he did in the 40s and 50s in my case, at school from my own teachers. And we all know that these words were used not so long ago in Charlottesville, in the case of George Floyd, uh, with the Confederate flags being waved at the Capitol on January 6th. So I guess I'm offering a kind of simplistic piece of advice that our country uh, on both sides of the aisle could do worse than to reread Huckleberry Finn or read it, because we still need to learn as a society what Huck learned, that Jim is real, and that he's a human being, and that that's still controversial. Thank you, Arnold. All right, I'm going to um, be asking questions of Donna and Arnold in the next uh, question and answer period. Arnold, I'll, I'll start with you because you just finished up. Um, and it goes to something what Don was talking about, uh, which was the importance of a communal uh, relationship that uh, once we choose what that curriculum is, uh, that we all read it so that we can all make common references to it. Um, here's a book that may not be able to fit within that communal experience. There are enough uh, school districts that will not allow this book to be taught uh, for various reasons. Um, do you think that means that it should be abandoned? Um, and if so, you know, what are the consequences of that? Is it important? Can we replace it with like putting him, putting Ed Wilson, another one of Twain's books? Could be replaced with, you know, the adventures of Tom Sawyer, um, or for that matter, should Twain just be abandoned and we pick something else, either from uh, American literature or otherwise? 
Well, you know, as Don knows as well as I do, maybe better, is that the canon formation about what's been taught has always been sort of a uh, a work in flux of sorts, that there have been changes up and down. It's a little bit like, you know, the stock market and valuations have evolved. Uh, so I, my, I, you know, revere uh, uh, cultural literacy, the book, and the and the argument. It was very important for for several generations of, of, of literature professors and students. Uh, I think one point that is needs to be brought also into uh, you know into the conversation is not just a common group of books, but also the sort of to create a society or at least a, some kind of population of readers. And it's in that sense that I would um, say that I don't know how we can legislate what the canon is. We can warn that uh, one should perhaps be more cautious in exiling uh, people, dead white males or whatever group was supposed to leave the canon or has you know, enjoyed it too long. But I, I think that uh, there are a lot of diff- difficult issues that come into play about what warrants being in the canon. And they get into matters of qualitative judgment. Uh, the reason I mention readers is that, that this is what I would add to cultural literacy. It's not merely that we need uh, a kind of content-based group of texts that we all agree are part of a general education that helps bind a society get together. But I also think we need to work harder in, in my area uh, you know, of, of learning uh, to teach people to be more discerning readers. See, my view is that what's controversial about this book is the reason why it needs to be read. It's the reason why it needs to be read. There's a large chunk of this country that needs to read this book. And that because something offends is not a reason to remove it. On the contrary, it's a reason to hold on to it and to ask, why does it offend? We haven't resolved these issues. They are still uh, very, very sensitive and explosive issues in American society. I think all of us have gotten, you know, even recent, uh, you know, installments in, in that type of education. So that, that, that's one way of sort of responding helter-skelter to, to your question. Don Hirsch, can you, uh, what are your thoughts on what well, should be in the canon I, and what criteria should I be used? I love being reminded, I haven't read Huxley in a long time, of course, I love being reminded of how wonderful that book is. I, uh, I, I suppose since some districts refuse to touch it, it can't be part of a national uh, curriculum, but it could be part of the standard curriculum in the colleges, I should think. I don't know what to say about that particular issue, but I think if, if you uh, relate these problems uh, back to the current polarization of the country, where you, you you were just mentioning the, the different uh, the, the how strong and active racism is in the United States, uh, so I, I I do think that the the studies in sociology that I've been reading make make pretty darn clear that one of the reasons for the current polarization is the lack of a center. I mean, the lack of commonality uh, in schooling uh, because what has happened, there are, there are sociologists who point that out, uh, identity with a political party and wearing red hats and that sort of thing um, are now connected with one's own social identity. Uh, that's you're identifying as a Republican more than as an American. And so 
there is a, a another step to be taken before we can really deal with the issue of should everybody know about ten, and that and that is really it, should everybody be an American instead of a narrower ethnic group, and that's why I threw in the part about uh, ethnicity not being racial um, in the multicultural movement and the emphasis on diversity uh, has tended to racialize thinking and uh, we need to uh, my conclusion is we need to nationalize uh, thinking because uh, it is a inherently diverse nation and everybody should have a, not multi, not to think of diversity in this sort of abstract way as coming as being defined by your home culture but in instead having a lot of different home cultures uh, but one school culture and the, the reason I spend a lot of, even when doing uh, way back 30 odd years ago doing cultural literacy reason I focused on uh, nation making and nationalism is that uh, it's something Ernest Gellner said in his book on nationalism the status of an individual in the industrial and post-industrial world is not a folk culture but a school culture and of course that all of the, all of the students of modern nationalism have come to that kind of conclusion you need to create a common school culture uh, to make to make the, these diverse nations work. And so, my I have strongly attacked <laughs> not racism head on, but uh, progressive education head on because we had a de facto <laughs> we were making pretty good progress along the racial uh, front. And then all of a sudden we weren't, everybody was not on the same page educationally when progressive education came in. Differentiation became the, the watch cry, following the child's individual nature. That was a, that was a huge uh, educational mistake. And so that's what I focus on, is rectifying that mistake and trying to work, well, first towards state curricula in the elementary schools along with the tests that go with them and then a kind of gradually de, de facto uh, national curriculum which is what we had basically in the 19th century the idea of the college uh, school go ahead Arnold. let me come in a little bit on that this is arnold Weinstein again i, I think that uh, one of the bugbears that threatens a lot of this is, is what has been called you know identity politics and it's a uh, i see it as a as a sort of regrettable out, you know, sort of uh, response to the, to diversity. Um, I think that uh, when one takes one suit, whether it's ethnic or racial or gender, uh, and to say this is who I am and that this must have representation, you know, uh, in um, you know in the curriculum and that uh, this is how I define myself. Uh, I think we do a great disservice to diversity and we do a great disservice. Uh, I guess this is me with my sort of you know, literature hat on. We do a great disservice to the elasticity and multiplicity of literary texts themselves. I mean, that they're, uh, people think the great, you know, the great books are just a kind of white male canon. 
But in fact, uh, most many of the great books are nothing but trouble. I mean, they're filled with, with many. They're multivocal. They've got they're multi-perspectival. There's a lot about uh, they're about fault lines in in the particular cultures that uh, that they come from. Uh, and therefore, I, I wish we could come up with a model. I agree with the view that cultural literacy is great promises that there is a center and that there are texts. You know, one problem with this is that a curriculum is finite. And for everything that uh, needs to be put in, something needs to come out. And it is the case that for quite some time there was no representation, either of women writers or, or, or writers of color, et cetera. So these populations have not had much representation. But to go whole hog in that direction is to forget that, as I said, that art itself is elasticity, is elastic. It's got, you know, peop- the Virginia Woolf can create male characters uh, who are very interesting. Uh, and that male writers, including Hemingway, can create female characters, and that William Faulkner can imagine black characters. Uh, I think that, and even Toni Morrison, who's not very interested in white characters, the ones that she puts in there are interesting figures. That it seems to me that particularly literature is so much more capacious and, and multi-tongued. Uh, this is the reason for uh, agreeing on a curriculum, but it's also a strong exhortation that they be taught in that way that is at odds with, with sort of some sort of despotic, single-minded view about identity politics, and this is who one is, and this is who one fights for. Uh, and uh, so that, that would be just one response to, to, to this uh, whole sort of uh, you know, mix of issues. There was, uh, as was an interesting footnote to that. Uh, it, it, there was quite a stir. Uh, in my family uh, a few weeks ago because somebody had sent my wife a, uh, a, a website address to an old McNeil Lara uh, show when cultural literacy was hot stuff in the uh, 80s. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I was on the McNeil Lara show, Lara show with uh, uh, Maya Angelou, Maya Angelou, and there was a Harvard professor. I can't remember his name right now. Anyway, uh, he was all worried about the fact that the Germans were very cultural literacy and they still had Hitler and Auschwitz. But uh, Maya Angelou was all in favor of having the uh, kids learn something in school. And uh, so she was very much pro pro uh, having the sort of uh, commonality of, uh, of and communicability that you get out of uh, common knowledge, and uh, so that that is an interesting that was an interesting example because you would you would be hard pressed to find a distinguished black representative from any field who would go whole hog in favor of cultural literacy. I hope actually that happens because the actual school results of trying to uh, introduce all students into the common, the, the, the knowledge that's needed to really understand the newspaper and, and biology books and all the rest uh, is uh, implicitly shared because uh, uh, it, I, I think I failed to mention in, in my little piece a wonderful comment by a cognitive psychologist, Daniel Willingham, which is a reading test is a knowledge test in disguise. 
And the only uh, modification I would make is that a reading test is a shared knowledge test in disguise. And of course, people aren't capable of reading Huck Finn now, actually. I mean, it takes a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sophistication about it, isn't that, wouldn't you say? I mean, do you, th do you think one reason there's resistance is that people cannot read that book with understanding? No, I think that's a marvelous question, and it's an uncomfortable one because uh, it's so easy to say you dislike a book for all kinds of, you know, fill-in-the-blank ideological reasons. It's much harder to admit that uh, you don't like the book because you can't read it, you can't understand it, you can't negotiate its language. Twain, I, I agree with you, Huck, I mean, Twain was quite proud of the number of dialects, the number, the bit of the you know enormous amount of research he had done uh, to put into that book. And my students, they simply have a great deal of trouble negotiating, uh, you know, sentence by sentence what's in the book. So that's um, it has its own can of worms because people don't want to say that's the problem. It's much more, uh, you know, it's it's easier to lay the blame uh, on, uh, you know, points positions that you disagree with. Uh, it's, well, it's like a I, at the end, of, I, I, I've just done another little book uh, in which I actually confront uh, uh, these uh, the cancel culture, sort of as it were. And uh, I I do think that there's an unfortunate connection between what Dick Rorty called the cultural left and the political left. Uh, the cultural left. Uh, the, the political left used to make, you know, I, you're not as old as I am, <laughs> even though we're from Memphis. You, you were there. Weren't you in a slightly later era? Uh, anyway, because you're still actively teaching, aren't you? That's right. Old I am, yes. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, the, the uh, I, I, oh dear, what was I going to say? It, it, it's just that this cultural left, which which makes a lot out of whether you're studying the Odyssey or not studying the Odyssey because it's racist. Hey, hey, ho, ho, uh, uh, movement uh, is is unfortunate because it's emphasizing difference instead of commonality, and that's a mistake. It's a technical mistake uh, in. For, for for getting the kind of equity one wants in the nation and the kind of competence uh, one wants, and the uh, the schools that have followed uh, you could call them cultural literacy schools are really uh, completely closing the black white reading gap, and uh, they're all getting into uh, select high schools and so on. So the parents uh, of these uh, of black children and Hispanic children are in disagreement with the university theorists of ethnicity. And so I, it's, it's an interesting political situation now with regard to that question. Todd, can you is, speak a little bit about... The people who are loudest in the, in the uh, uh, various uh, jurisdictions that decide on curriculum and such matters, uh, they are not necessarily representative of the parents because the parents in huge numbers and get very disappointed when they can't get into these content-oriented schools. It shows up just as uh, forcefully uh, in 
appointments that are made uh, when positions are <laughs> when positions come available in humanities, which is less often than it used to be, but that the diversity claim is such that we must have in you know X or Y or Z. We don't have enough of X or Y or Z, and uh, this has become mm-hmm. you know I find myself seeming quite reactionary by saying that we want the smartest person you know in the group, and that uh, that that's because that's an elitism at least of a sort that I can believe in. Uh, but one of the things that, that grounds my that type of conviction, that elitist conviction, is that the materials we study have themselves so much scope and um, what I call capaciousness in them uh, that uh, the lines where these battles are fought, that we've got to have more women, we've got to have more blacks, we've got to have, what you know, it could be more Muslims, we've got to have writers that are more, you know, lesbian, uh, those things, once you single them out and, and make them your sort of crusading cause, that this is not represented in, in our either teaching core or in the books we assign, it seems to me you've done a disservice to, you know, to to the profession at its best and to most of the books that are important. Uh, but and even to talk about quality today is to run the risk, again, of sounding horribly, you know, belletristic and just, uh, you know, elitist. And, and I... That's the way I was formed in my own work, so I still believe in those all qualities. You know, on that point, Arthur Schlesinger wrote a, quite a good book. I think it, I can't remember what the date was. It was in the 20th century, of course, it, and it was uh, uh, called the, re, the Disuniting of America, and he coined the phrase the cult of ethnicity, which I think is a very telling phrase, and uh, what's interesting is that nobody knows what ethnicity is. Nobody has bothered to define it vaguely associated with race, which is scientifically incorrect. Uh, the ethnicity has zero to do with race. And, and that was a point I was trying to make sort of off the hand in my presentation, that ethnicity is entirely cultural. And Donna, I, in in your book on knowledge matters, um, you talk about the uh, the French experience and the radical change in their um, in their educational process. Um, and I, I guess I'll, when we open by what, what I understand the French used to do and where they went, and then you could talk about uh, how it went wrong. So uh, France had a very strict national curriculum on. Uh, each particular week, they would have a, a specific topic to discuss uh, throughout the day in, in a various different um, classes. And it was not only true in Paris, but it was true all over the French world, whether it be in Guadeloupe or Quebec or, or wherever. This was what was taught in a French school. Um, there was uh, It was a bona fide national curriculum. Um, but in the 1980s, uh, following the lead of some of the progressives in France, uh, led by the sociologist Pierre Bedeau, he recommended that they focus on the individual child and have the, follow the child's natural instincts uh, and interests and not follow the national curriculum. And then they offered teachers to follow whatever curriculum they thought best, whatever text, uh, right. whatever right. subject. It wasn't just Pierre Bourdieu. It was also the sudden prestige of everything American. The French started even liking Coca-Cola. I mean, th- 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 there was, after the 
Second World War, there was a lot of pro-American sentiment in France. And so they thought, well, the Americans are doing awfully well. They're rich, they're free. So everybody was very America-centric among the intellectuals. So Pierre Bourdieu had his own uh, theories. But in addition, there was general sentiment, let's copy the Americans in, in France. And that's what, <laughs> well, let's, let's, instead of tying everybody down to this national curriculum, let's uh, do what they're doing and follow Dewey instead of uh, whoever they were following. They, the, the French school system have all, the French have always rejected Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau, <laughs> you know, was banned from, from France after he wrote uh, Emile. And... Uh, <laughs> So what well, happened to the French schools after this uh, change in curriculum policy? Well, they Americanized and they said, we have to differentiate and each school should have its own theme. And, uh, do, and each student within the school should do his own thing. And what happened was the French uh, reading scores plummeted and also, and this is the more important point, I guess, the equity uh, uh, declined hugely, and and I uh, it, I think I showed a graph which illustrated that how social class determined your school record, uh, which it, it much to a much greater extent uh, post Americanizing the schools. Uh, than before Americanizing the schools. And Pierre Bourdieu himself is a, a wonderful example. His parents couldn't even speak standard French. It's a, uh, he came from a poor family and he rose to the top under the French educational system. But uh, I dare say that could not happen now in France. So. It's it's a sort of cautionary story. Whereas the Germans, who kind of followed from the beginning and the uh, child-centered idea of frivol, you know, and all of that, uh, the kindergarten, uh, they did very poorly in the first PISA results, the International Assessment of Students. And uh, they corrected themselves and they've gotten what is now essentially a national curriculum. So the Germans went one way and the French went another, and the Germans are doing far better now. One of the things that's interesting about the French is that they've always had a very particular slant and take on American literature. I mean, they've uh, the, the French got Faulkner at a, at a time uh, when the, the uh, much of the intelligentsia was totally writing him off. Uh, that uh, you know the New Yorker uh -huh. was and the New York Times were saying you know failed minor talent. And Sartre and Malraux were uh, saying that this is, you know, this is the most interesting writing, you know, of our moment. Yeah. They also like Jerry Lewis. I mean, they, you know, they have some sort of, you know, a little bit wacky views sometimes about American society, and they're always convinced that they're right as well. But I think the way you just described, uh, Don, is a version of a kind of new free enterprise curriculum, and you give up the old one, the one that probably came post Napoleon, where you have a centralized educational scheme. Uh, that is, you know, very muscular and is required in the colonies, was everywhere else too. 
But it is also the case, I mean, I hate to, you know, I, it is the case that this curriculum was surprisingly all male, not surprisingly, rather, and that it, uh, there, you know, people have found that there were remarkable writers uh, in the Renaissance that were women writers, both in Britain and in France, and that, uh, and for so long, uh, they had no place whatsoever. And then, I, I remember when I came to Brown, my field in comparative literature was exclusively Anglo-American. It was all Eurocentric, and uh, and then uh, England and and the United States. And of course, now you can't get any you know respect in this field if you know nothing whatsoever about other large parts of the world that, that were never thought to be necessary uh, to know to be educated. So, right. I think this is a this is a kind of dialectic that goes that's been going on for some time. The canon does have a lot to answer for, it seems to me. But I think the idea of a formulaic solution that we've got to have one from you know like a Chinese menu, we've got to have one from column A, one from column B, and one from column C. Uh, for every course we teach, and of course anyone who seems offensive to us, like let's say Faulkner uh, or Hemingway, well, you are have to get rid of. The principle of quality, and of course I, I say first we have to have practicality. I, if you, if people want uh, not the greatest works that are representative, I'm all right with that as long as everybody knows the same things. I'm I, I'm thinking that. The general point, the devil can quote scripture for his purpose. I mean, as long as scripture is there, uh, as long as there's commonality enough for communication and and moral and and creating a decent society, uh, I'm not going to get into a battle about uh, having to, you know, Give away even Huck Finn. I mean, it, it, the the stakes are getting pretty high now in the in the country. I mean, it's falling apart to some degree, and uh, it, to to make a canon entirely based on merit is is I I think perhaps not the number one issue now. Commonality. No, I agree with you. It's not the number one issue. Uh, and, and of course, merit, you know, goes up and down too. And the, the writers who were conceived, construed as very meritorious, you know, one sees all kinds of warts and problems with them. But I, you know, I think that I, I, I understand and agree with the point that you've made, Don. That, that from any kind of a, or from a societal point of view, about what the purposes of education are for, in a sense, creating, a, you know, a populace or a comedy, uh, where there's some shared, where there are shared communication is real, and that people have the same sort of touchstones that that are available to them and in common to them. Yes, that's more important than insisting on quality. I also feel this is where you and I will differ that the core of my field uh, runs the risk of it is qualitative. That great art is great, not only because it may help bind a culture together particularly a difficult culture like America, which has so much diversity, uh, but also because of what it says to us about, you know, being alive and having a brain and a heart and all of these old-fashioned things that the qualitative argument addresses. And um, so to me, it's a tricky, it's a conundrum to have a book that I think is a simplistic book, but definitely 
represents a group uh, and that everybody needs to read it so that they know something about that group uh, is has something for it, but it's also, I think, a risky proposition. But I, I recognize, too, the history of right, it's hard John, to play. John, when you, when you say... Um, you don't really care which book it is. So if, for example, if the progressive left put together a syllabus um, and it was second-rate work, but it filled in all the blanks, and that curriculum became the national canon, which was taught in every school and in every classroom, uh, would you be happy with that? Because at least we'd have a common well, culture. Well, what I think would happen, I think at that point, when everybody is communicating and and uh, and operating very effectively, you would cease. There would be a chance that the culture would improve, and you would go for quality rather than representation. And and also, if you have the feeling we're all Americans, you'd want the best American work, quite irrespective of origin. And so, I, I think the cult of ethnicity. You, we've got to hope. That which is what all this representationism is about. Um, I hope that that diminishes because the the future of the country depends on it. But okay. Don, With what do that... you think about the the, the, the other weakness of, of uh, that I think you're going after? Not only is the cult of ethnicity, you know, a little bit scary in terms of where it leads, but it seems to me it is such a reductive picture of of what both readers and texts are. It, it's 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 a one-liner about you know self-definition. Uh, it's it strikes me that it's a you know that that's one of the scariest features of it is that most of the interesting of the important books have more scope than that. As I said, women can write men, men can write women. Uh, the difference can be written by lots of different writers, uh, and that many books themselves you know contain you know as Whitman said you know multitudes for himself. Of course, that's true. And it's an enlightenment point you would hope that everybody would come to, uh, but only after you've gotten past the current polarization we're in now. All right. With that, I'm going to turn to our final speaker of today's show, and that's Peter Tiemann. Peter is an economic historian at MIT. Peter, if you're with us, you can go ahead. Yes. Okay. Thank you. And uh, let me say by beginning that uh, that history is as important as great art. There have been two attempts to include blacks in the mainstream economy. Reconstruction followed the Civil War, eliminated slavery, but it did not grant freedom the freedmen 40 acres and a mule, and its effects wore off by the end of the 19th century. Lyndon Johnson's Great Society followed World War II, promoted black voting and education. It ended under Reagan in the 80s and Clinton in the 90s. Uh, Clinton, from his promotion of trade that hurt rural whites, Whites reacted badly in both inclusions. And both inclusions were followed by Gilded Ages. The Gilded Age followed Reconstruction. White South 
was cured by the 1876 compromise that brought the South back into the U.S. by excluding blacks. Jim Crow laws at the end of the century restricted black education and progress and lasted until World War II. Our Gilded Age followed Johnson's Great Society. Rich people do not want to pay taxes. They reduce services to workers, black and poor people. They imprison blacks and other poor people. The Jim Crow laws were uh, are by the North, which industrialized and expanded West. The South remained agriculture and focused on cotton. Jim Crow laws segregated blacks. Southern labor markets were not linked to Northern ones. Freedmen earned less than whites then and still now. Lynching discouraged black voting, peaked in the 1880s, continued into the 1920s. The Great Migration started in World War I. Skilled blacks went north. Southern wages fell while northern wages rose. Mass incarceration was started by Nixon, who started a war on drugs. He demonized blacks who opposed the Vietnam War, replaced poverty's war with his drug war. The U.S. now has 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. One in three black men go to prison during their lives. Drug laws are new Jim Crow laws. Blacks are 12% of the population and 40% of prisoners. Incarceration is now stable at high levels. No releases for COVID despite prison illness. Roz Chetty described incarceration incidents. Blacks are more imprisoned than whites, but the difference decreases with family incomes. The uh, imprisonment gap is more than three times higher for poor, the poorest blacks than the poorest whites. Poor black boys are destroyed by prisons, no education, no workplace skills, unable to form families, crime and prison become a way of life. Black men remain a permanent underclass. So what are our takeaways? Rebel rule is now nearly complete in many states. That's from Frederick Douglass in a lecture from 1894. These words have been escaped Slave are true again. Stacy Adams, Adams, Abrams, in our day, formed Fair Fight in 2019 to get blacks to vote. Do we need another war to try again and desegregate our economy? It's a question for all to consider. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.
Peter, um, uh, my first question relates to uh, the Great Migration. Um, this was the story of African Americans leaving southern uh, agricultural jobs and heading up north for industrial jobs. Um, I, I come from the city of Chicago, and that city is currently about evenly split between blacks, Hispanics, and whites. Um, but what's different is is that we're getting a great migration of Hispanics into Chicago and a great migration out of Chicago by the African-American community. Uh, we lose approximately 10,000 African-Americans every year and have lost so now for uh, that rate at almost for two decades. Um, and they tend to, the African-Americans are doing a reverse migration. They're heading back south, uh, predominantly you know, to states like Georgia, Oklahoma, and especially Texas. Um, what are your thoughts on the migration out of the north by the African-American community back down to the south? I think because they're finding better jobs, uh, better housing, and better schools. Yes, well, the Great Migration started in the demand for labor for the world First World War. It ended around 1970 when the jobs began to disagree, uh, disappear. And now blacks are looking for work. The South at the moment is the, the new South, so called. Uh, is starting to industrialize and do things, and they're going looking for jobs. Uh, the uh, Latinx uh, immigration is a much more recent phenomenon, and now is apparently pushing out the blacks who are having an, a new migration. I don't know how big that is. I mean, the story of Flint, Michigan, is those people are stranded there, uh, by the uh, by, the uh, uh, by the end of uh, industrial jobs in the auto industry, and subjected to bad water and uh, a lot of diseases that come from that. You, uh, in your previous research, you spent a lot of time working on the Great Depression. Um, and suggesting combination of monetary and fiscal solutions to those problems. Uh, today, we have an economic situation that is substantially worse in many respects than the Great Depression. Um, how do you think about um, the lessons from the Great Depression to teach us now for the economic situation, and then maybe play it into, into race as well? Well, that the blacks uh, are poorer than the whites so they live together, and uh, so they have caught more of the pandemic. And uh, in my book, I even say that perhaps President Trump intended to clean, clear out the blacks in the United States because he had such a history of racism in there. And so the blacks community uh, which uh, deal with a lot of, uh, of jobs. The jobs are there, but the whites are unemployed there also. And so I don't know how the competition is going to work out for them. Uh, and the uh, uh, bill that President Biden is pushing at the moment, uh, and McConnell, McConnell is, is uh, trying to stop, is uh, uh, would be a big help to the black community. Um, 
any thoughts on the fiscal monetary policies uh, that relate to the Great Depression that may be applicable now? Or do you, do you think that we're, um, it's properly sized? There was a huge difference um, of around $500 billion between the Republican and Democratic bills. Um, and because the Democrats have control over the presidency in both houses, it looks like we're going to get to $1.9 trillion. What do you, what do yes. you think about the efficacy of that decision? Well, what's happened is that the uh, the uh, uh, the that the uh, uh, that the the uh, uh, tax rate on the highest people has become lower and lower since about 1960, so that they are there and they don't want to pay taxes for anything, particularly anything that affects the poor. So the larger bill by the Democrats is absolutely needed for this time. If we don't have that large bill, we're going to repeat repeat the experiences after the 2008 crisis when there was no recovery for the ordinary people. Okay. Um, at the end of every show, I try to go around uh, and end on a, a note of optimism. Um, Peter, what would you what would you say you're optimistic about? Well, I'm optimistic about Biden reversing this trend, and so then supporting the people, as he says, he wants to unify the country. And what he wants to do is to try and help the ordinary people in the United States. Uh, I hope he doesn't want to try to unify Congress, because that is a dead end at this point. Don, I don't know if you're still on the line. Uh, Don, how would, uh, what are you optimistic about? I was very eager. To, I'm, I'm hopeful for the Biden administration, too. But in uh, my bailiwick, which is elementary education, and uh, you mentioned that uh, how ill-educated blacks are, the uh, under in recent years the black-white reading gap has widened. It's gotten worse. And here's the paradox. And I think all of us. Uh, uh, people who want greater equity in the United States can get behind it. There's an unfortunate uh, contradiction between the Democratic Party's views on education and the Democratic uh, idea of e equality and helping everybody out, higher taxes and so on. I think we have the Democrats have to get smarter about education and narrowing these. Uh, uh, gaps, uh, and it, because education is is going to determine whether a kid goes to a good high school and then goes to a good uh, college, and it, so it's it, it's very important for social equity and for and for narrowing the economic black-white economic gaps, and so uh, the Democrats have to get smarter about education, and it's a paradox that they all adopted these progressive educational ideas when what is needed is, is strong knowledge base and a strong uh, 
commonality of knowledge and, and language. And so I hope that people on the, in the I'm optimistic, put it this way, that, that the Biden education policy will uh, move uh, towards a commonality of knowledge in the early grades, because that's what's needed to, to close some of these economic gaps. And until you close the black-white reading gap, uh, we're not going to make economic progress. Economic why do you, what aspect of the um, Biden administration educational policy do you think reflects uh, your views of establishing a national curriculum based upon a single canon? Well, I don't think you should. Uh, I don't think it's feasible politically to cast it in those terms. I think the, the states do not run elementary education. That's it, it, under the Constitution. It's the duty. I mean, the uh, the federal government does not uh, run education in the early grades in the United States. It's the states that do that. So you have to work through the states. And my hope is that Biden will exercise a very strong influence within the states. That's that's all. It's it's it's. Uh, really a, an exhortation policy. There's probably a little money that could help. But uh, the basic is it's a, it's a state problem in the USA. Great. Um, Dr. Andrew Racine, are you still on the line? And if so, uh, what are you optimistic about? Um, I am, Larry. Thanks for asking. I'm actually quite optimistic about what's happening with the COVID uh, pandemic for a bunch of different reasons, at least within the United States. Um, I think it's very difficult to underestimate how remarkable the progress that's been made with respect to this particular infection is. It is unprecedented that in the space of a year, you could identify a pathogen, sequence its genome, and get therapies and vaccines available in less than 12 months. That is something that has never, ever been done before. And that was done in the teeth of a public policy, or at least the posture of a public policy, that was sort of inimical, if you will, to scientific advancement. Now you've got a, a significant change in terms of um, sort of public policy. And if you add that on top of the momentum that's been created in the scientific community and the muscle that's being put behind a lot of these new uh, interventions in a public policy realm, um, I think we have every reason to believe that we're going to get this thing under control in a fairly short amount of time. And given the fact that this is the most um, sort of serious threat to public health that we've seen in over 100 years, uh, that's good news. Great. All right, that ends today's session. Uh, I want to give a quick plug for our next week's speakers. Uh, Tevi Troy will be discussing uh, U.S.-Israel relations under a Biden administration. Uh, Jonathan Marino, a professor of Penn History of Science, will be discussing uh, aspects of COVID. Uh, Richard Elbow will be talking about um, immigration. Uh, the ethicist Jacob Appel will be discussing the ethics of uh, vaccinations. And Madame Grinstein will be discussing the challenges facing uh, art museums uh, in the times of, of COVID. All right, with that, I want to thank uh, our speakers for all their comments and insights, and of course, our listeners uh, for their attention. 
Uh, with that, uh, that ends today's call. Uh, you may disconnect now. Thanks to everyone again. Bye-bye.